There's nothing quite like the fall season. The crisp air, the changing leaves, the sweater weather. It all has a special place in our heart. But in recent years, nothing's become more synonymous with fall than pumpkin spice. And for comedian John Oliver, it's gotten a bit out of hand. Yes, it's that special time of year where we voluntarily imbibe pumpkin spice lattes, the coffee that tastes like a candle. And, <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean it tastes like a candle smells. Pumpkin spice lattes taste like a candle tastes. <laughs> All pumpkin spice jokes aside, there's actual real science behind our obsession. Our reward centers of our brain light up when we encounter fat and sugar. And we think, oh, this is, this is amazing. Remember how this happened. This is something great. I got to do this again. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, how pumpkin spice became the official flavor of fall. Later, the power of food to bring us together. I heard co, co, co. And so I opened the door and she was holding this little casserole dish. And she says to me, this is from Mama. But first, back in 2019, Ken Garcia Elias bought Angie's Kitchen in Virginia Beach. Ever since, he and his parents, Ed and Lalise, have been serving their community traditional baked goods of the Philippines. Producer Matt Darrow headed over to Angie's Bakery to join Ken and his parents as they made babinka, a Filipino-style cake served after midnight mass during Christmas time. Sometimes I was get mad because I'm uh, I'm working I'm working over there with the babinka and the, the and the telephone ring and I'm the one who's gonna answer the phone. <laughs> Oh my God, this is. Yes. And then because I'm gonna come out of here, how come you're not answering the phone? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you mess up one thing in the in the bibinga, it's it's gonna put in the garbage. He's very particular with his process. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's not yeah. like me. Sometimes we're like, come oh. on, the customer's waiting. Yeah, because <laughs> like, when we the, gotta wait. When the customer sees that it's rolling out, oh, that's bibinga. Can I have one? No, not yet. <laughs> this bibinka is uh, my wife's original version. This time of year, Christmas is approaching. We always have to have bibinka on the table. And my grandma is the one who's always saying, okay, uh, I have ordered the bibinka and we always eat together and with the hot tea and hot tea. Chocolate. I love the color. Oh yeah, this purple. Call that purple again. I like to tell people that it's it's a simple cake. I compare it to your banana bread. It's not like a dessert cake. It's like a snack cake. That's good with coffee, good with tea. We make an an ube bibinka, which I think we're the only ones in the area that are. Because uh, our tradition, we have uh, like uh, Simbangabi during Christmas. Uh, Midnight Mass. It's a Midnight Mass. And then after Mass, there's so many vendors outside the church selling bibinka. And it's our tradition Every time we go to church, my grandma, I used to go with my grandma after church. We stop by and before we go into church, we have orders already so that we can pick it up on the way out. You can smell it inside the, uh, the, the church because the uh, front door of the church is wide open. Because it's not, it's not really hot, or really, it's cold during that uh, uh, midnight, you know. When you smell, just like, oh, it smells Christmas. You see, we were talking about it, me and my sister. Do you remember when it's Christmas? All of us six girls, we all have the same dress. <laughs> the same. Whatever mom has, we have the whole thing from oldest to youngest. It's all matching. And we go to church together and... 
And then we go from house to house, give us uh, their blessing, and they gave us something. And sometimes they gave us money, sometimes they gave us food. But uh, that is the way that so that we don't have to forget our own relatives, so that we know still them, we, we still know them until we get older. Every day, at, I look at the time. I said, be ready, it's three o'clock, we're gonna be slum, and it's true. <laughs> Yeah, we, we've had like some superstitions too, like if someone drops something loud in the kitchen, that makes us think like, oh, we're gonna catch a crowd today. Or when a tray drops, <laughs> someone's gonna wanna buy all that today. <laughs> That's, it's just, and a lot of that has come true. So we kind of look at that like, oh, it's gonna get busy. It's a hard work and a lot of dedication but it's uh, at the end of the day, you're happy when you see the people are happy. Um, I like hearing it from people that they're like, oh, this is just like the one in the Philippines that I grew up with, you know? Like it tastes just like that. Those are good things to hear. That's, that kind of keeps us going, that keeps, keeps us in. Uh, where's your bibinga now? Yes, is it ready? set up there. You can put some, you know, uh, butter and sugar and uh, torch and... Oh, you do it. You want me to do it now? Yeah. I can see how he does in the yeah, bakery. He, he likes it. And uh, he enjoys I it. enjoy watching him doing everything, most everything. And I'm proud of him. Can we have a bite now? Two. Which one do you want? This Maybe. one. Up next, sharing food in Benin. Like many Americans, Erica Cavanaugh grew up learning the values of independence and self-reliance. But that changed when she was a young woman and joined the Peace Corps and spent two years in Benin, West Africa. Erica is an English professor now at James Madison University, and she says sharing food with her host family in Benin helped bring her out of her shell and shed those long-held American values. Benin is about seven degrees north of the equator, so it's quite hot, and it borders the Atlantic Ocean, and so that makes it very humid as well. And so when I stepped off, even before I stepped off, I felt that thick, sweltering air just coming into the fuselage of the plane. We landed at about dusk and it was dark out and we packed into the back of these Peace Corps vans and we're riding along. And all of a sudden, when we took a turn, you just saw all of these bright candlelight, both in the street and on the sides of the street. And it just looked like really a sea of stars that you were moving through. And it was, you know, we found out a night marche or a night market, as we say. And that was really the first most powerful image for me on that very first day in Benin. What were those candles or little lights? Yeah, um, they <laughs> typically were made out of tomato paste cans. Or, or tomato paste is used <laughs> in many Beninois sauces. And they got recycled to be these lights. Essentially, you know, they're cleaned out and then you'd put kerosene in them. You'd punch a hole in it and have a very thick wick placed through that hole and then you'd light it and you'd have this very robust flame. I'd love to do that, right? Make one of this. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you lived adjacent to or you were paired with a family there. You came as sort of an American used to being independent and operating on your own and were afraid to be a bother to the family next to you. I did. I grew up really taking care of myself, and I just didn't want to get in people's way. <laughs> so, um, 
about a month in, I was sitting at my desk by lantern light and I heard this sound outside my door, co, 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 which is the way that people announce themselves rather than knocking as we might hear because often a curtain covers a door there Mm -hmm. um, and you wouldn't really knock on a curtain. That wouldn't work very well. Um, And so I heard co, 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 and it was in this little girl's voice And I knew immediately that it was the youngest girl child next door, Chantal. And so I opened the door and, you know, I kind of squatted down to her because I didn't want to be towering over her. And she was holding this little casserole dish, a lidded casserole dish in her hands. And she says to me in French, she says to me, this is from Mama. And she was holding it up to me and she was trying so hard to be composed, but I could see in her body that she was all wound up and feeling shy herself. And it was so disarming that I made this big show of thanking her. You know, I said, grand merci, Chantal. And I bowed down to her and I took the casserole and she just smiled and blushed and ran off. <laughs> and I heard her calling, Mama, you know, as in like, Mama, I did it. She I gave it. it to her. Yeah. <laughs> what was in the casserole? What kind of food did the mother give you? Yeah. In that dish that night, I remember particularly that she gave me what's called pot in French. Uh, it doesn't translate well <laughs> into English. <laughs> um, but it is essentially like a polenta in many ways, or what we might call a polenta. It's made of finely ground maize flour whipped up with water and some salt and perhaps just a little bit, some hot pepper, because they really love hot pepper over there until it congeals into a kind of mold so that you're able to pick it up with your hand and dip it into a sauce. So there was a ball of the pot and over it was kind of a a sauce, a tomatoey sauce. And with that, she put in the, um, I think it was a drumstick of, of a chicken that had been living in our yard. Did you like it? Yeah, I loved the sauces in Benin. I mean, they had wonderful, what's called gumbo sauce. Gumbo is the French word for okra. So that was frequently the sauce. There were these tomato sauces. One thing that I had to get used to was the amount of hot pepper that they would put in. (laughs) I wasn't used to eating that quite as much in the United States, but you do get used to it and you kind of... If you're not tearing up during a meal in Benin, then something's wrong with it. It just becomes something you even look forward to. And this became a series of gifts that she would make for you, food gifts. Every now and then, another little casserole would appear brought by one of the children. Yeah, sometimes Chantal would come on her own, and Chantal was about six at the time. Sometimes she'd come with her brother, Charles who was just about a year and a half older than she was. Sometimes Charles would come on his own. So they took turns and it would happen, you know, every week or two weeks. And I would send something back. Um, They liked my pancakes, but they did not particularly like sweet things. Uh, They tend to prefer savory foods. And so I just gave them to them plain because that's how they preferred them. Once a carpenter came over to put a ceiling in my house. So I wanted to cook something for him because it's a large job and he was working all day. So I made pancakes for him and I did put honey on them. And then he took a few bites and he had this just this look on his face of um, (laughs) disappointment. And then he says to me, Madame, they're too sweet. (laughs) And he couldn't eat anymore. And I felt so badly. I ran out to a vendor and just said, can you give me some pot and sauce? (laughs) And so then I bought that and brought it back inside and fed that to him instead. Fascinating, right? Yes. You know, the things that we're accustomed to are what we love. Yes, exactly. And, you know, food just was one of these big 
teachers that, you know, we, we're born into tastes for different things. Tell me some of the foods you remember that you miss and that you look back fondly on as part of the culture. Sure. I think one of my favorites is um, I lived uh, during Peace Corps training with a Beninois family, a Fawn family in the South. And the mother there for the first night made me grilled fish. And she would have had to have gone about an hour and a half drive away down to the market in Cotonou, which is Benin's largest city. And it's right on, it's on a port to get that fish and keep it cold and bring it back. And it was just this enormous fish, um, you know, not filleted or anything, the full fish grilled right there uh, outdoors on her outdoor grill. And it was the first time I ate a full fish with its head still on and its eye sort of charred and everything. Mm -hmm. And anytime now that I go to a restaurant and they offer, say, a full trout or anything like that, I order it without hesitation. Right. Just to remember that. Another meal that I loved uh, that that mother made, her name was um, Victoire Gounod, she discovered that I liked a particular kind of pot. There are three kinds of pot. And I really loved pot rouge. So imagine a kind of orangey polenta, if you will, if that's familiar. And it was just covered in uh, what's called moro, which is a kind of um, tomato, onion, again, hot pepper sauce. And it's just delicious. And I think very fondly on that meal and the care that that, that mother, Mama Guno, put into that. The mother of the family you lived next door to also grew her own peanuts in the ground. Yes, the whole family had um, what they call over there groundnut fields so that the mother could then roast those at market, at the outdoor market, and, and sell them. Those groundnuts, I think because of the soil they're grown in and in the climate they're grown in, are the most delicious I've ever had. I come home and I eat peanuts and I remember the first peanuts I had here in the United States were kind of disappointing by comparison because the taste <laughs> of the groundnuts or if you will, peanuts there were so much, I don't know, they're, it's a deeper flavor, it's a deeper, richer Flavor. I'm not quite sure how to describe except to say more peanutty than the peanuts here. What are some of the things you missed when you returned home? One of the things that I missed really was sharing food and even knowing my neighbors. Because in Benin, yeah. you walk around and everyone greets you. And you'd come out in the morning and people would call out, Akpunando, which meant, how did your sun rise? And you'd answer, Alafia, which just means, it's all good, I have health. You know, and then they'd ask you many other questions like, how's your child, Ana Wenbi? And you'd just say, Alafia. Um, and I missed that kind of contact with people, the sharp contrast here, was that you come home and people also tend to keep to themselves or have a certain kind of anonymity. And the shock of it was isolating. And what I wanted to do with food, uh, I came home and I, I lived with my father and my younger sister before I went off to graduate school and I would cook for them. And every night, whatever leftovers we had, I had this instinct as if it was kind of a, a momentum still living inside me to pack it up in a casserole and bring it next door. But I knew I and couldn't... say, cook, cook, cook. Yeah, to say, cook, cook, cook. Here's some food. Um, but I knew that my neighbors would think I was very strange and we didn't really know our neighbors very well either. But uh, I recently moved into a new home that has an enormous fig tree in the backyard. And this summer, there was no way that I could eat as many figs as this tree 
produced. Uh, I left some for our pollinators, the wasps and the bees who love the figs. But any extras that I had, I texted a friend of mine who I know also loves figs, and I just gathered them into a bowl and said to her, you know, would you like these figs? And then I would run over to her house and just leave them on her porch. And I would say that's really the closest that I've come offering you know, one's own abundance to to a friend or a neighbor, to what mama and papa and their children did for me in coming to my door with, uh, with those casseroles of food. Erica Cavanaugh is an English professor at James Madison University. Every fall, So many people look forward to the return of the pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks. But how did pumpkin spice become the official flavor of fall? Catherine Franson was a life scientist at the Science Museum in Richmond. She's now founding principal at Franson Strategies and breaks down the history of pumpkin spice and why our brains are obsessed with fall. So our brain knows that we're about to enter both um, a time of seasonal change, but also a time when there's a bunch of feast and family and fun all coming up with the different celebrations and festivals that come throughout the fall. You've even compared that idea of anticipation to the visceral feeling inside of us or the addiction that comes with gambling, what's the association? I think it's possible for us to be sort of, you know, addicted to to fall or, or the pumpkin spice latte. It is filled with sugar and fat, typically. And our brains have evolved to really seek out sources of sugars and fat. That is what we respond to. Our reward centers of our brain light up when we encounter fat and sugar. And we think, oh, this is, this is amazing. Remember how this happened. This is something great. I got to do this again. And so when we walk into a Starbucks, for example, um, and you're faced with, you know, maybe you've come in from this brisk, cool fall day and you walk inside and it's warm and cozy and, um, and then you have all these smells, All of that is going to then give you the anticipation of, I'm about to have sugar. I'm about to feel really good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm about to have something wonderful. That actually works in your brain the same way that uh, that addiction does. Is so we have this 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 anticipation of something wonderful and then the see- the seeking behavior of like, "Ooh, I want to do that again." Is it something that, you know, just emotionally we like and we're vaguely aware of how last fall was or something going on in our brain chemistry? It's a little bit of both. The experiences that we have throughout life are able to encode memories. That's how we build our memories. Well, the way that we build memories is through neural networks. We combine neurons, they connect, and they they form these different memories of the experiences that we have. But the special sauce, the the dopamine, uh, which is the neurochemical of pleasure, those change which neurons are connected together in that neural network to form the memories. And so when we have experiences that are pleasurable and exciting and fun or delicious, all of those things allow our brain chemistry then to, to shape which memories are formed in the brain. And so both our experience and our brain chemistry come together to really develop this this experience of fall. This pleasurable chemistry anticipation you say is related to something called predictable novelty. I love the sound of predictable novelty. What is that? It's the idea that we can 
predict things that are coming. We're looking forward. We kind of know what's coming, but there's novelty. There's something new that's coming. Our brain responds especially to new things. We love, we, we seek out new experiences, fun, new adventures, but we're also a little afraid of change, a little afraid of, of things that are too different. And so being able to predict what may happen and come very close to that allows us a little sense of comfort. And so predictable novelty is sort of a, a comfortable change, if you will. Where do you think pumpkin spice and the smell we associate it with a certain time of year comes into play in all this? So back in the late 1800s, McCormick's Spice Company came up with the pumpkin pie spice, cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, cloves, and ginger. And that blend of, of spices was then used in traditional baked goods throughout the year, of course, but typically with pumpkins and pumpkin pies that are made in the fall around Thanksgiving and things like that. And I think it's it's really become kind of magical how we've begun to associate that blend of spice, the smells and the flavors with the experiences that we have throughout the fall. One of the funniest things I think that's led to is that people sort of expect there to be pumpkin in a drink or a, or a food that has pumpkin mm-hmm. spice in it, whereas um, a lot of times it's just the spices that are associated with a pumpkin-flavored baked good. What's amazing is that this fad of the pumpkin spice latte is building on long traditions of those, those Thanksgiving pumpkin pies and things. So back in 2003, as Starbucks was testing out lots of different flavors and seeking a really interesting flavor blend that they could market, the pumpkin spice latte was invented and it became something really uh, phenomenal. And it is actually an absolute genius of marketing that the pumpkin spice latte Hmm. has really come to characterize the fall season. And it isn't just Starbucks. What are some of the other companies that have gotten on the bandwagon? Yeah, candle making companies like Yankee Candle, um, a lot of home goods, um, body lotions and, you know, and, and scented products for for spas and things like that, as well as a huge number of foods. Typically, that's going to be sweet foods, breakfast foods. But then also there's even like some other savory foods like, I don't know, there's pumpkin spice spam. <laughs> I could imagine by now you're sort of pumpkin spiced out anyway, right? Do you have a visceral, you know, opposite reaction to it? Uh, no, you know what? I just, for Thanksgiving, I baked two pumpkin pies. I baked pumpkin scones and uh, pumpkin muffins. So <laughs> I baked a lot of them and they were all a big hit, especially the muffins. So those were those worked out really well. Catherine Franson was a life scientist at the Science Museum in Richmond. Now she's founding principal at Franson Strategies. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Maybe you remember the hot chip challenge from 2020. The whole internet watched as brave souls tried to eat a chip dusted with the world's hottest pepper, the Carolina Reaper. Reactions ranged from the hilarious... Man alive! How bad is it? My tongue is really, really bad. Have some ice cream. All down my throat. It's, I've got a, great, a massive, great, big, fiery tongue. Is it easing out at all? Not remotely. <laughs> it's getting, it's actually spread to the back of my throat. Can I just say, it's going to spread to your stomach and then you know where it's going to go next. I mean, this is the gift that keeps <gasps> on giving, this one. To the slightly scary. Oh, I like, mm. You all right there, buddy? <laughs> <clears throat> you okay? <laughs> you need some water? You're literally sweating, Jim. Stop talking. Okay. (laughs) Can we get a medic in here? Now there's a new challenge on the block. Ray Parrish is the owner of Maltese Brewing Company in Fredericksburg, Virginia. He's teamed up with University of Mary Washington chemistry professor Sarah Smith and her student Vala Benke 
to create the world's spiciest beer. He calls the beer Signal One. And for anyone who can drink 10 ounces in 10 minutes, they'll be forever enshrined in the Hall of Flame. Ray, you set out to make the world's spiciest beer. And you don't just mean spicy, you mean hottest beer. I've never even heard of beer being hot. What gave the idea? Uh, I hadn't heard of it being hot either. Uh, We were sitting around one day, as we often do, uh, the management team here at the brewery, thinking of uh, interesting things to do. And uh, I've been a pepper grower and participated in chili eating contests for, you know, my whole adult life pretty much. And so we kicked around the idea, you know, after a couple of beers of our own, of course, why not try this? See if uh, (laughs) there's a number out there for the world's hottest beer. We can get our hands on the peppers. Let's try to... uh, try to make the world spiciest, knowing that it would be a fun thing to do, uh, to see people attempt it and to see people fail in particular. And so we went for it. Kind of ironic, isn't it, that your company was originally started by firefighters? Yes, that sort of played into our idea as we were uh, having another beer or two and continuing to flesh out this idea. Why not uh, build fire into the fire beer and firefighters. And then uh, the more beer that flows, the more ideas that kicked around. And next thing you know, we have our brewer uh, dosing uh, our pineapple IPA with uh, 500 of the world's hottest chili peppers. (laughs) Do you think you're going to make the Guinness Book of World Records? You're trying for it, right? That is uh, is a question. They are super, super backed up from COVID. And I, I have conversation with them about once, I don't know, every month or six weeks. Oh, we're getting to it. We're getting to it. We're getting to it. So I'm really on their timeline as far as Guinness, which is kind of a uh, a bucket list item for me since I was a kid. But for now, until somebody says otherwise, we're going to say it's the uh, the world's hottest beer and uh, keep Guinness's name out of it until we cross that bridge. It hadn't occurred to me till now, but is the Guinness Book of World Records about Guinness beer? It is. The same company, the same family that uh, is responsible for the Guinness Brewery, the legendary Guinness Brewery, is uh, the Guinness Book of World Records. That is really fun. If you were into it when you were young, and I was too, what was your favorite record breaker when you were little? There was uh, the world's heaviest twins. I can't remember the two names, but they were twins, and they each weighed (laughs) about 700 pounds, and they rode around on these tiny motorcycles, which were probably regular-sized motorcycles, but they were so big, they looked tiny, and I was just fascinated by these guys. Every year, I'd get the uh, Santa Claus would bring me the newest uh, volume of the Guinness Book of Records, and I would scour it, looking for the the, pic, the new picture of them. Yeah. You think they've lasted to this day? Oh, I'm, cer- I'm certain not. That was, you know, almost 50 years ago. <laughs> so you infuse this hottest thing that you can find that's ingestible and not poison into the brewing process. Help me understand what you put in there and then how you measure it. Okay, well, I'll leave the measuring part to uh, the scientists because that's not really my cup of tea. But as far as the brewing right. part of it, we take our uh, our pineapple IPA, which is a standard beer that we have on tap all the time. We found a purveyor of Carolina Reaper chili peppers, which is the, uh, the world's hottest chili as of uh, this day, uh, and put it in there just like when you're dry hopping a beer to get that hop flavor. Put it in the finished beer, let it sit and percolate for... A couple of weeks, and then you got a, uh, a terribly hot beer that causes mirth and merriment in the tap room. You went to the chemistry department at the University of Mary Washington, where you'd gone as an undergrad, right? Right. And you went to Sarah Smith, a chemistry professor. And Sarah Smith, you're on the line with us, along with your student, who's done a lot of this research. What went through your mind when Ray first asked you, could you help us measure the hotness factor in our beer? Yeah, well, the first thing I thought of was, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard of. I've got to be a part of it. Um, So I had friends that had done a lot of the, like, like, we buy the spicy chips and we buy the spicy chocolate and we do all those challenges. So I'm like, this is awesome. I got to tell my friends. Um, then the next thing I thought of was what student is going to be perfect for this? And so the first student I thought of was um, Val or Valabinki. She's a biochemistry major at Mary Washington. And she was in my instrumental analysis course where we learn about how to determine concentrations of different things. And I was like, okay, Val, I sent her a message over winter break. I'm like, I've got a project. Are you interested? 
Val, were you? I was looking for research and I thought it was such an amazing and interesting topic. It's not your conventional research topic as well. And so I was extremely excited about doing the research. So the two of you figured out what you had to buy in terms of supplies to go about starting to figure out how to measure spiciness content? What did you buy and what did you figure you had to do? Yeah, so the first thing, actually, so the very first thing we did was we did a literature search to see what had been done before oh, um, to kind of give us a starting point. And so what we found was that, so we're more used to thinking about hotness as being Scoville units. So when you go to like Buffalo Wild Wings, they always have it listed, like the hotness um, listed based on color schemes where you think of like red is really hot, green is mild, and there's a Scoville unit attached to that. However... Um, and Ray actually was the first one that kind of showed us this, was that the original Scoville unit, what it is is just based on taste. And so what they would do is they, people would try a pepper, see how hot it was, and then d dilute it until they couldn't taste the hotness. Well, it's not super scientific. Um, there's not really a concentration <laughs> with it. It's just like, how many times do I have to dilute this so it doesn't taste spicy anymore? So what Val and I found in research was that most of the time now what you look at is the concentration of capsation, which capsation is the part of the pepper that binds to your tongue, which is what makes it spicy. Right. So it binds to a specific receptor on your tongue that's specific for spicy things, and that's how you perceive it as being spicy. And so what we had to do first was determine, okay, which molecule or which things in the pepper make it spicy. And then from there, we had to figure out how to figure out how much was in there. Sarah, you had to actually buy some kind of scary chemicals or factors yes. to, do, to create the measurements. Yeah, we did. So what uh, we found was that 90% of what makes it taste spicy is due to capsation and dihydrocapsation, which are just two molecules that are the things that bind to your tongue. So what we had to do was we had to purchase those so that way we had a standard that we could make a standard curve so we could figure out concentration versus signal from our instruments so we could find out what the concentration was on raised beer. But that had its own safety risks with it. So capsation, it's a powder form. It's very light and fluffy. It likes to fly around. Hmm. So it's almost like we had our very own pepper spray <laughs> uh, in a powder form. So the first time I actually worked with the capsation, the chemical itself has, in the bottle, it has a red triangle, and on it, you have the skull on it. And the skull says danger, and I'm actually looking at it right now. And so <laughs> once you open that, of course, you have to be fully geared. I usually have my lab coat on. I'm double-gloved. Um, I wear two masks most of the time. The first time I actually use the beer, I was in a hood. And so that hood is ventilated so that any fumes is stored inside the hood and it doesn't come out into the room. And so it's, it's a very powerful chemical. And it even says, if it's swallowed, you have to immediately call a poison control center. It really requires that you're you're protective geared, you're gloved, you're clothed, you're, you have eye protection. I wear goggles all the time when I'm working with it. Um, it does cause skin irritation, and so I'm extremely cautious of when I'm working with the chemical. After we let the beer sit in the fridge over summer, because uh, Val was doing a summer internship, we opened up the beer and literally she opened it up, a cloud of red smoke came out because it had been probably fermenting a little bit as we were gone and we had to evacuate the room because even with her mask on and with her goggles on it just smelled like spiciness she came and got me we got another faculty member went in and we're like we got to leave this room empty for a while and let this air out so are you guys done have you determined how spicy ray's beer is and whether it's going to be the winner of the guinness book of world records so yes, we actually have a number. We did figure out that there's something in the beer that's probably maxing out how strong the capsation is. However, after several months of working through the um, beer concentration, we figured out that it was about 317,000 
Scoville units, which is about the scale of the habanero pepper. Ray, do you think you're going to win? Do you know of any other that comes close? Well, there, there's no entry in the Guinness Book now for the uh, <laughs> for this category. So yeah. assuming that they, we eventually get through their queue, uh, I, and I've done pretty extensive research uh, looking for someone who does anything like this, and it just doesn't exist. So for now, I think that we're the only game in town, and as soon as we get through the queue, we're going to be in there. However, yeah. I would... Uh, be delighted if another brewery wanted to challenge me on this and uh, and say, Maltese Brewing Company, we think we have the spiciest beer and let's have a showdown. That would be my dream come true. So Maltese Brewing Company, you guys are in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and you hold periodic contests to see if people want to try the spicy beer drinking brew that you've created. What do you call it? Uh, we call it the Signal One Challenge, which is a, uh, a firefighting term for a, a heavy fire. And it's it's not even periodic. Anybody can come in here anytime that we're open, Tuesday through Sunday, and pony up to the bar and say they want to give it a shot, and we'll give them a shot. You've got this 317,000 Scoville unit beer, uh, 10 ounces you need to consume in 10 minutes. And if you can do that, and then not eat or drink for 10 minutes, you get Forever famous on our wall of flame and a really cool T-shirt that you can't get any any other way. <laughs> Does anybody ever try? Oh, yeah. we uh, Just this past weekend, uh, we released version three of uh, the Signal One Challenge, and we probably had a dozen people come and, uh, and give it their go. We haven't given away enough to uh, have good data for version three, but their success rate was about 40% for, for version two. And, you know, we allow all sorts of shenanigans, rolling on the ground, clutching your stomach, uh, reversals, if you get what I mean. <laughs> Just uh, you got to be able to, to sit through 10 minutes without eating or drinking. And people are pretty tough. What about um, having it come back up? Oh, that's, uh, that's encouraged, as a matter of fact. That's uh, what makes it fun for the bartenders, fun for the other patrons, is watching, uh, watching folks completely lose their condition, head out into the field in the back and... Uh, that's when the YouTube videos ensue. Pretty much uh, everybody that comes in, it's, it's typically or almost exclusively not a one-man game. People will come in with a bunch of friends, and one or two will decide <laughs> to do it, and all the rest of them will pull out the cameras and uh, document. And, you know, it's, it's one of those <laughs> things that it's good for families forever to watch your, your dad or your brother completely crying and, and losing his mind after uh, just drinking 10 ounces of beer. It's one of my favorite parts of my day here. Are these usually townies or college kids? Some townies. Uh, a lot of our, our mug club and our, our guests are, you know, everyday guests. But we have people that are chilly heads that, that travel for this. I'm seeing more and more all the time. People, uh, you know, they go and they say, oh, where's the hottest sushi? Got to go there. Where's the hottest burger? I got to go there. We have people doing this uh, chilly tourism to come here and try this beer. Describe typically what happens when somebody's doing this. Have you ever done it yourself? Oh, I have several times. Um, the technique that we have found is the most successful to take your 10 ounces of as hot a hot sauce that you've ever had and chug it. People that go for the sipping technique, it gets in your mouth and your body says, please don't do that again. And a lot of people fail. If you chug it, though, your mouth, you know, you've sort of fooled your, your body into uh, accepting this, but that's when the, the, the pain starts. It's, it's down in your stomach. Uh, you, sort of your esophagus is on fire. Some people, uh, have, you know, get a flop sweat. Their, their faces turn red. Some people do have, you know, gastric issues, but it's, a, you know, it's, it's a temporary thing. It's a, capsaicin is a short-acting chemical. 10, 15 minutes later everything is forgiven and people go on about their way, have a burger, have a couple of regular beers. Are there tears? Oh, plenty of tears, plenty of, uh, we have started uh, in the last, oh, I don't know, six months or so, handing out a, a barf bag, like airplane barf bag with it, just, uh, just in case it comes to that. Uh, it's really more for as part of the show as anything else. We encourage people if they, if they need to, uh, to lose it to go outside. <laughs> Have you thought about upping your game a little bit, you know, making the stakes even higher? That is the plan for version four, of uh, which will be after the pepper harvest of 2022. This year, we decided to uh, make things a little bit more accessible 
and have it be a little bit more inclusive for the contest. Uh, give away a couple of more T-shirts. So it's a slightly, slightly less intense this year. But next year, we're going to go whole hog and try to shoot for a million Scoville. You know, if you think about biting into a jalapeno pepper and, you know, having smoke coming out of your ears and tears in your eye, the comparison to the kind of active ingredient in reaper pepper is just hellishly more, right? Oh, yes. Thousands of times more intense than a jalapeno pepper. I like to, uh, I like to think of the Signal One Challenge as taking a bottle of the hottest hot sauce you're going to get at a restaurant and chugging it. And then chugging another one. Ten ounces is approximately two bottles of hot sauce. <laughs> How about who bothers to do this? Is it almost all men? Um, I'd say it's probably, I haven't analyzed the data, but 80% men. But interestingly enough, it's something with the female physiology. The success rate of ladies is significantly higher than with men. Men, uh, it was about a 40% success rate, and the ladies were seeing a 75% success rate. And what about technique for women versus men? Do women sip, men guzzle, or what? Uh, it goes both ways with both genders, but the most successful technique for both has been the, the chugging technique. However, we have run across two people uh, doing the challenge, and I know of one other person from other parts of my life that must be lacking a gene or having an extra gene that are completely unaffected. Sit there and drink this, uh, this fire brew, just sipping it like it's nothing, like it's a, a, a lovely lager. Isn't that amazing, right? That would be an interesting thing to study, the genetics of that, because I, kn I know three people now that it's kind of, I guess it's kind of like the cilantro soap thing. These people just are not affected by capsaicin. Are you getting calls to ship the beer elsewhere across the world? We are. Lots of them, especially uh, last release, the Signal 1 version 2. I was getting calls from chili heads all over the world asking us to get it out. And we talked about it as a, as a group uh, at the brewery. And number one, for the potential legal liability of it. And number two, for the cachet of you know, having it only happen here, we decided to keep it in-house for now. However, uh, that could change, especially now that I hear that the, uh, the capsaicin standard has such a cool label. I'd love to make a, uh, a can label with that and, uh, and maybe get it out of here if we can figure out a way to cross the, the liability hurdles. How cool is it? It's a pretty cool label. It's got every um, danger warning that you can have. It's a pretty scary bottle. Have you tried it? Have you taken the challenge? I actually haven't. I have a wheat allergy, so beer is a no-go for me. Val, how about you? I haven't, but I've had one friend who is so, like, dying to try it. So he might be coming in this weekend. <laughs> You're not trying it because you've been intimidated by what you've seen in the lab? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I've worked with it, and as, at first touch, my eyes start watering. One thing that's interesting is so Val just got her abstract accepted. So Val's going to be presenting this work um, at the American Chemical Society meeting in March at, in San Diego. All right. Congratulations, Val. I hope she comes with samples, right, guys? I don't know if they'll let her take that on a plane. <laughs> Ray, you should ship it. I, I think we might have to figure out a way to make that work. That's, uh, or maybe I'll, I'll take a trip. That sounds like a fun... Uh, yeah. San Diego, you said, right? Yes, yeah. And she is in... I didn't realize this, but there's a division of alcoholic beverages... Perfect. Man, it sounds like a road trip waiting to happen. <laughs> well, Ray, Sarah, and Val, thanks for talking with me. Before we leave, our producer, Matt Darrow, actually tried the Signal One challenge. Let's close with a clip from his spicy experience. Gotcha. I'm, uh, I'm here to try the Signal One challenge. Oh, you're the gentleman that uh, Ray was yes, having yes. a comment. Okay, cool. Yes. Well, there is a waiver that we have you fill, have you sign. Yeah. Which one of those? <laughs> sign a waiver. You actually really do. Yeah. Yeah. That is your 10 ounce glass. You just came from a mysterious room back there. <laughs> with, with, with the glass of the world's spiciest beer. All right, I'm a little nervous. Let's. Uh, let me give this a whiff first. I think I can even see the spices on the top here. It actually smells good. 
Oh, yeah, let me get the topic on. I'm sorry, I gotta get the time started. Oh, right. Oh, God. Okay. All right. There you go. Whoa. That is spicy. It feels like lava going down my throat. I can feel it going down into my stomach. Oh, he's got it. One more to get down there. Let's he's go! Got it. All right, let's go, let's go. All right, you turn this off. It's on. What's the day? 14. 14. 14. Awesome. So I'm officially on the wall of flame. You're on the wall of flame. Thanks for having me. It was fun. I, I, I don't want to do it again, but it was fun. <laughs> Ray Parrish is the owner of Maltese Brewing Company in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Sarah Smith is a chemistry professor, and Val Abenke is a student at the University of Mary Washington. Catherine Franson was a life scientist at the Science Museum in Richmond. Now she's founding principal at Franson Strategies. Special thanks this week to Pat Jarrett, media specialist at Virginia Humanities, for his co-production of this episode. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto and Cassandra Deering are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>